0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Culbertson. I promised all the way back in March, when I published my episode on the Dawn of Everything, that there would be more episodes with experts, and here we are. Today I am joined by four anarchist archaeologists, members of the Black Trowel Collective, To discuss the book We had so much to say that our panel went for over 90 minutes So I decided to turn it into two episodes So this is the first half of my conversation With four anarchist archaeologists About the new graeber wingro book The Dawn of Everything They will introduce themselves And you'll hear our conversation after the music Okay, hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is a very special episode today, the very first panel discussion I have had. It's on the topic of the Dawn of Everything, the book about uh, an, an anarchist, or at least egalitarian rereading of all of human history by David Graeber and David Wingro. And I'm joined today by a, a subset of a collective of anarchist archeologists, the black trowel, Collective to talk about this book. They will introduce themselves and also please, as we do this, tell the listeners about the Black, Trial, uh, Black Trowel Collective and if there's any way they can support you or get involved.
1: Yeah, thank you, Graham. Um, my name is Louis Bork. I'm, I'm one of the, the collective uh, uh, members. Uh, the Black Trowel Collective has been around since Gosh, I think uh, in 2016 is when it formed. It really started to, to coalesce in, in 2014 and 2015. But there's been archaeologists since the 90s, at least in um, uh, uh, in Europe and in uh, North America, who've been uh, applying anarchist uh, frameworks and, and actions, uh, one of our, our kind of um, uh, matriarchs uh, is uh, a woman who goes by the initials TK, who started a, a labor zine, in uh, f- uh, for uh, field techs. So these are folks working um, uh, on the ground doing archaeology uh, for uh, for companies, uh, essentially. M- majority of archaeologists actually work for for-profit companies, in the, uh, in the globally um, to try to improve labor conditions because it's a uh, hugely um, uh, underfunded and, uh, kind of trampled class of, of, uh, individuals working, uh, essentially construction, uh, but getting paid less than most of the other folks working, uh, construction. And, and, uh, in the two thousands, uh, a, a, number of us came together and, uh, started talking about how we could apply all of, uh, uh, these ideas, which some of us had been interested in for a really long time. Others, uh, were coming, uh, newly to it. And, um, Instead of it being like a traditional kind of academic conference, it just ended up uh, with a bunch of us uh, sitting around and becoming uh, friends and realizing that we had we had similar uh, ideas of, of where we wanted to see the, the world go and, and, and archaeology as, as well. And so we published, uh, we uh, co-wrote uh, together um, a, a manifesto and published that on uh, online and that's that uh, you can actually find that on our on our website now if you just google black trowel collective uh, our website uh, pops up um and uh we've been pretty active uh since then especially since the pandemic's hit and and we've been uh expanding uh, fairly uh steadily as as well i forget what our counts are now um but we're we're fully international like i think we're in every single time zone on the on the planet uh at at this point um and uh, we have started an incredibly successful mutual aid uh, program called the Black Trial Collective Microgrants uh, uh, Project, and, and a, a sub uh, committee of the collective works on that. And we all rotate through it because it's, it's uh, a lot of emotional and, and cognitive uh, labor to, uh, to do this. But uh, that's really oriented around uh, funding working class uh, Black and Indigenous archaeology students globally to uh, help kind of ease uh, uh, severe economic um, uh, issues that they're running into, uh, particularly grad students and undergraduate uh, students. Uh, so get people to actually uh, have decent dinners, pay their rent. Um, uh, we've helped people with uh, uh, bail uh, to get out of jail from protesting and that kind of stuff as as well. So we're pretty. Uh, our main goal is to make it as uh, not onerous as possible for for them to actually apply, so uh, they can they can get the help they need. Great, and if
0: you if you give me a link, I will I will put that in in the show notes, listeners, so you can you, you should be able to pull up your phone or wherever you listen to this and and click and read about this program and donate. Okay, who's next? We met Lewis.
2: I, I nominate one of the James to go. <laughs>
3: I'll I'll go next, I guess. Uh, I'm uh, James Flexner. I work at the University of Sydney um, in Australia as uh, an archaeology lecturer. And um, I do most of my research uh, on the last 500 years um, and the kind of era of European colonialism in the Pacific Islands and um, the coastal areas of um, Pacific facing Australia. um, And basically spend my time thinking about, you know, if, if it took europeans 500 years to make as big of a mess of the world as they have um what can we do in the next 500 years to kind of undo some of that mess um and so my kind of engagement with anarchism came both from a set of very deep frustrations with a lot of the kind of orthodox thinking within anthropology and archaeology but also from um a kind of sense of wanting to take the academic pursuits that I was interested in and actually use them to do something resembling good in the world. Awesome. Thank you, James.
2: Go, James. All
4: right, we'll do double James. Uh, my name is James Birmingham. I'm also a member of the Black Child Collective. Uh, I'm also on the board of the Institute for Anarchist Studies, and I am the uh, archaeologist, in quotes, on this panel that uh, I'm not in the academy, I'm a PhD dropout. And so I was pursuing a PhD at RPI in STS, doing kind of contemporary material culture studies, looking at collectors and collections and the production of the material objects for everyday life. Um, And then I left the PhD program for a number of reasons. but. so now, um, as far as my work in kind of material culture studies slash archaeology is, my thing is really what does archaeology bring to the table for anarchism? Um, how can it make anarchism stronger? How can it make anarchist theorizing and thinking and ideas um, more robust um, and more um, powerful? Um, yeah, that's it.
2: And I am uh, I am Aris Politopoulos. I'm a lecturer for the Archaeology of the Near East uh, at Leiden University in the Netherlands where I teach basically all all sorts of stuff West Asia related, from early cities and states to empires to what have you. Uh, I generally specialize on Late Bronze Age and Early Iron Age Eastern Mediterranean. I have a very particular interest on empires and the archaeology of empires and how empires form and fall and how they are administered and all sorts of things about the populations of the the empire, resistance to empire and so on. My PhD was on Assyria, for example. Um, So this is one component of my research. And the other component of my research is video games. I do a lot of stuff with archaeology in video games, archaeology in play, archaeology in board games. Theorizing a lot about play and how we can use play to make archaeology better, how we can use play for communication, uh, play to better our lives in general. So play is a big component of the things that I do, also in the field, Um, and it also somewhat ties in with with my anarchist ideas as well, which initially had nothing to do with archaeology, but just the. Protesting and rioting the the system, basically. Uh, and that culminated into just the last 15 years of me uh, thinking about anarchism in various ways. Um, and now also through the Black Travel Collective.
0: Okay, that's that's everyone now, listeners. And uh, that's Lewis, James, James, and Aris. So if you don't know who is speaking and it's not me, you can guess that it's James and your odds are good. Um, so... Uh, now we're 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 here to our topic today, which is this book. Uh, this book, The Dawn of Everything, um, it nearly explains everything and where and where it came from. Um, I will say, in my own episode on it, I, I I find it refreshing that this is a book that tries to explain everything, like these other books, Guns, Germs, and Steel or Sapiens, yet uh, comes from people who seem to actually know something about something which i have not found to be the case for most of these books that uh claim to explain everything and there's a real sense that the the narrative of civilization as i as i taught many times as i was teaching concepts like uh i was in the literature department so world literature or brit lit one or whatever the notion of civilization is this sort of thought experiment some people thought about it uh in europe especially in england and scotland in the 16th and 17th centuries uh and then france as well and then that's sort of how history works and when we have been studying history and archaeology it's been to find the truth behind this thought experiment and instead the dawn of everything tries to actually uh read our uh the material culture of the past to find how people lived and how the world became uh, the way it is but that's not something i can evaluate i can evaluate the intellectual history but i cannot evaluate the archaeological (laughs) angle because i know nothing about archaeology so um i'll turn this question to all of you you can all speak in turn you can cut each other off if you want to that's up to you i'll stay out of it but let's just start there like to what extent? What is the value, or what work is this doing uh, in the field of archaeology? To what extent is this intervention fitting into uh, the work being done in archaeology, as as you understand it? Go, go right ahead, Lewis.
1: All right, I'll jump on that one. You <laughs> used to raise my hands. Can I go? Um, you know, it's it's interesting, and I, I and this kind of goes back to uh, some issues. Uh, that uh, I think are really uh, problematic that academics have just in general with books that aren't written for other uh, academics and and uh, it 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 also and it has other issues you know wrapped up with uh, you know where our research funding is coming from who we're writing for uh, who's able to access our, our publications and, and our research and all that kind of stuff in the in the grand scheme of things like you know I'll I'll I'll, I'll say this. Directly, uh, I have a lot of concerns with the book, and uh, but I also have a lot of things about the book that I I love. I'm teaching a world archaeology class next semester, and I'm actually using that uh, uh, in my in my class instead of a textbook. And Aris and I have taught um, uh, archaeology classes together when I used to be when I was in London. Possibly the first time two anarchists uh, taught an archaeology class together, but I'm not totally uh, totally positive. And we had a at least one student uh, note that as a concern in their student evaluations <laughs> but it was it was a good class and, and and you know this was back in when was this RS like 2017 2018 yeah
2: 2017 i would say yeah
1: and it's it was interesting reading uh the book because i've been working on something tangentially uh similar to this and talking to graver about it uh when he was still alive and uh and when uh here and there as as well and and when RS and I sat down to organize that class, the first thing I, I, I said was like, I hate how we teach uh, world archaeologies because it's always about like, here are these state level societies, here are these capital C uh, civilizations, but I'm a North American archeologist. Like I, I, I've worked in South America, Central America, um, but I don't generally work with state level, uh, what people would consider, you know, quote unquote state level uh, societies. And uh, one of one of the big, I think, uh, takeaways that uh, Wengrow and, and Graver Graber have in this book is is that North America's weird uh, when you look at things on a global uh, global scale. And I don't think it's as unique as they make it. And James can uh, Flexner uh, can talk about that for uh, for sure. Uh, but it it's definitely a counter to a lot of these narratives that they're that they're using it uh, uh, for. And that's how I that's how I position myself within the, uh, within that classes as, as well was for, to be like, all right, so that's where people are doing all of this stuff where they're aggregating power and doing this and, uh, and that, and creating like large cities and urban organizations and such. And here's where they actively, uh, did not do that. And they, and they, and they tore it apart and they, they found different directions to, uh, to go. Uh, all of which is not me trying to, to brag, but it's to say that, you know, a lot of what uh, the Davids, David Squared, uh, we've got two Jameses and two Davids uh, in, uh, in this conversation. Um, we're talking about, it's not new in archaeology, um, it's but it hasn't been communicated by us to the public uh, very well. I wrote something back in 2017 with a colleague, Shane Miller, about uh, how uh, indigenous uh, ideals uh, kind of uh, underlay the American uh, dream and and, uh, and that was picked up in, in a few uh, areas uh, but you know outside of like that minor thing that I did and like a few um, things that Wengro and Graber wrote and a couple other uh, public things most of what you see is this stuff from like you know biologists like, uh, like Diamond or mm-hmm. um, folks who are really kind of pulling on this um, uh, you know, we need, you know, bureaucratic organization and states to keep us from killing each other uh, all the time. And so you, there's a lot of kind of blindness in terms of what data uh, they're selecting, which I know is like an argument people have levered against uh, Graeber and Wengro for this, that they're cherry picking data and that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, you know, it's doing what everyone should have done a long time ago, which is to communicate these really interesting findings uh, to, uh, to people who aren't, Uh, uh, academics or who don't regularly read like, you know, our white papers and stuff like that. That's the, really the most important and unique thing uh, uh, in in terms of like, at least how archeologists uh, are talking about this. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, in another of his books on debt, Graeber makes this point that sort of for a long time, archeologists and anthropologists in the academy kind of stayed away from so-called grand narratives or we kind of just stuck with the ones that we had about the origins of agriculture and the rise of civilizations and all this stuff. Um, And, and, you know, Graeber, I think kind of recognizes that, like, if we stay away from those things, they get picked up by people like Jared Diamond. And I don't want to waste all of our time here bashing Jared Diamond, because that's been kind of done to death, but, you know, Diamond is a, he's a, sorry, he's a bird scientist. Like he's not someone who actually studies people he happened to work in new guinea early in his career and met you know the kind of indigenous peoples of the highlands in in papua new guinea but he's not actually trained to understand their lives ethnographically he clearly has a lot of blind spots about the recent history of what's happened in those places and how it's transformed those societies and so he's made up a bunch of kind of very convenient just so stories that don't actually make a lot of sense to anyone who's really studied or lived with the people who who live in those kinds of regions. And I think that's where books like The Dawn of Everything provide a really important kind of counter narrative and counterpoint. And um, I mean, what's interesting for me, given kind of where I've ended up um, in in my life and in my career was reading through some of the things that Graeber and are writing about Native North America and thinking about how well a lot of those sort of narratives actually um, parallel a lot of what we're starting to learn about Indigenous Australia in terms of um, you know, people's mobility and their ability to move between different spaces, the ways that particular kinds of systems like having a common system of kind of animal totems that allowed people to go in and out of different communities um, as a way of maintaining particular forms of autonomy. Um, a lot of that stuff does kind of, um, it, it makes a lot of sense when you start looking at it and you start realizing that, um, you know, the the kind of the state formations that we're familiar with in the present are really the, the historical aberration when mapped onto the grand sweep of human history. So even if there are particular knits that I would pick, and I'm happy to talk about those, you know, while we're we're having this conversation, um there's definitely a kind of general sort of truthiness to to the 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 grand narrative that they're trying to um put in place over the course of the book. Um, and then, you know, I think the, the the sort of open secret to all of kind of knowledge production is that any grand narrative is kind of there to be undermined by particular specific examples where things went in a slightly different direction. And that's why those of us who work in academic spaces spend so much of our time kind of firing these these white papers that like three other people care about back and forth to sort of work on those specific bits of the the um the reality of of human existence across time and space um in ways that that occasionally get picked up and are used to help to improve the grand narrative right so the the ways that for example Graeber and Wingrove picked up on um the work of our colleagues like bill Angelbeck to actually kind of help to tell a better broad brushstroke kind of story that that reaches a lot more people um in in the way that they have go
2: on james
4: i was just gonna to echo some of what james and lewis just said um i agree that whenever you're gonna do a big history like capital b capital h um it's not going to be perfect and i would say that you know the davids did cherry pick but that's that's the work of building an argument. That isn't going to be, I mean, the book's already too long. It could be a lot longer um, if it was going to, you know, try to pick up every citation that it possibly could. Um, And I do think uh, also for, I hate the term, but lay people, for lack of a better term, people who aren't in the field of archaeology or anthropology, when they think of archaeology, they think of it as a science the same way they do chemistry or biology. Um, There's this like, oh, that's what the archaeology says, it's fact. But archaeology is more like um, philosophy or history in that it's a field where uh, there are very strong disagreements, there's constant knowledge production, there are people who look at two two stratification sites and look at the assemblage of both of them and come to wildly different conclusions about them and have equally um, sound reasoning behind why they're coming to those conclusions um so it's not like a black and white sort of you know it's not math um and like, you know and math philosophers are going to be like well actually math isn't like that either but that's, you, you that's know what exactly, I'm, you know what I'm, exactly you know what what I'm trying to say <laughs> here is that when most people read a piece of archaeology or see something in national geographic or on the history channel or whatever that you like that's just fact to them and the truth is like it uh, a field, just like all the sciences coming from my, my science studies background is, you know, it's under contention all the time. Um, and I think what the book really brings to the table um, and what I found it super useful for is I think the vast majority of people, even people on the left, have the very uh, teleological cookie cutter view of, you know, well, Until agriculture, we couldn't have high enough population density in order to do X, Y, and Z. Like, that's like just the common sense ideas that people have. And the book's very good at being like, well, actually look at all these examples of how that's not the case. Um, Aris, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just want to echo all of the things that are being said. I I very much agree. Um, There is considerable value to this book. Uh, we can be pedantic all we want with uh, with our own little neck of the woods, in a way. Uh, and people have. And people have for, even for both Davids, right? Because both of them have have worked on, on grand narrative ideas, um, and people have complained about it. And that, as an example, actually is a good one for, for Near Eastern archaeologists because they tend to complain a lot about things that are being written there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just... a just a great book. It brings a great argument, in my opinion. And I think that's the case with, with The Dawn of Everything. I'm not going to repeat the praise because uh, I think we can quadruple down to it, but I, I agree on all of it. It does bring in an, a narrative that is lacking in the world, a narrative that's lacking in, in the popular culture, and it's something that quite literally, somebody had to do it. It was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it, and they, and they did it. Right? And we can only thank them for sitting down and, and putting the ten years of work that that this took them. I would even go as far as to say that I wish this book had been more cherry picking than it is, because it's in the end it ends up being this six hundred <laughs> pages volume. And in a couple of days ago, David Wangro was in Leiden, and there was a question about this actually, um, and he said that they. Their original idea was that this, I quote this, this was going to be like the Hobbit to their upcoming trilogy. They were planning to write three other books and this was supposed to be The Hobbit. And now The Hobbit is supposed to be this very small book. Uh, But in a way, I wish it was a shorter book because I don't mind the cherry picking as everyone else has already said. At some point, you're cherry picking, and there will be points that you can't convince everyone because people will complain about your cherry picking. But uh, if it had had it been a little bit more concise, it might have reached even more people. Something that's already a, a New York's bestseller, I think, it's it's not a let's say a, a an airport book, not in a negative way, but quite literally something that you can just read. Um, but that's again i understand why the, yeah exactly I, I understand why they did it uh and it, but it, it, and it is a lot um and it's it's good it's excellent um but i yeah for, i i'm also contemplating using this similarly to to what Lewis is saying i've been talking to some colleagues in leiden to have a seminar on just on this book right we take it chapter by chapter with students, and we do a critical evaluation of each chapter. So I think it can both be used for for its popular outreach, which is extremely important. It can also be used as a, a handbook style that you can actually teach with um, young archaeologists because it does have this different narrative that you can't really find in other textbooks. You can find it maybe in our papers or in the in the anarchist papers that form a very small part of the uh, archaeology literature out there. Right, but you really have to look for them, and now you have a book that you can that you can use that people actually know. So for all of these, I think the the dawn of everything is great, and I think we can criticize it rightfully for many other things. But it's important to to underline also its value.
3: And and I think you know there's there's kind of two things here. One is. We should all be so lucky to have one of our books end up on the New York Times bestseller list, right? Like, I'm happy if I publish a book and it gets downloaded 500 times or whatever, um, you know, let alone several million. Um, but I think it's also important to kind of think about the fact that this book is not, it doesn't represent an endpoint, kind of regardless of whether Wen picks up and, and, you know, I think we, we have to acknowledge that, unfortunately, our colleague Dick David Graber passed away last year, um, which which kind of is a uh, creates a certain kind of trajectory that that we have to just kind of recognize is limited. But also, it's not just for them, right? It's not just for the two of them to write their Hobbit and then their follow up trilogy. It's actually for everyone to kind of pick up and run with in whatever directions it needs to be run with. And, there's a um, kind of similar effect in Australia, um, where there's a book by someone called Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu, who's an Indigenous scholar who's written about kind of Aboriginal agriculture and urbanism and a lot of stuff that kind of upsets the received wisdom about you know Indigenous Australia. And yes, you know you can you can fire all the same criticisms at that book about you know cherry picking data and um kind of glossing over things and and specifics about particular sites or particular interpretations but the point is you know that book wasn't it's not there to be the book of like it's the classic thing of, of if the book actually contained the entire world in it it would have to be the size of the entire world and you can't sort of encapsulate that amount of complexity within you know five hundred pages or whatever. Um, but it provides us with a whole bunch of tools that we can then pick up with um, in our own research areas, in the ways that we communicate, uh, the knowledge we produce to the public, in the ways that we talk to each other about things in the ways that we teach our students, um, that I think takes us in a whole bunch of productive directions that simply weren't there before. And that's where the the value lies. It's actually, you know, it's a foundation rather than a kind of um, end point.
0: Yeah, I'll, um, I'm gonna introduce this this concept. So uh, the, I don't know what to call him, French intellectual Michel Foucault talks about these uh, founders of the discourse, which is you've got someone, uh, and, and and you guys have already alluded to this to a certain sense. I mean, Freud is a famous example who comes up with these narratives that uh, you know, civilization and its discontents explains how civilization works, not its history, but how it works in 120 pages. Um, so of course it's entirely wrong, and yet there are still people you know writing downstream of that book, exploring the the ways that it is right and wrong and contesting each other. And Freud's work in general, and really that book specifically, founded this this discourse. Many of the uh academic disciplines have a few founders often in the late 19th century who sort of people keep going back to someone like durkheim in sociology i thought i have thought before i read the dawn of everything that graber seems to me like a founder of a discourse that all of his work is productive and provocative and as you say i probably james said it because there's two of you um debt uh, debt has already done that, is that people, you know, is debt right? No, of course not, because it's the history of all of money. And yet, it's driven so many people already to think about money and write new books downstream of that. So I was hoping this book could be that, a foundation of a new discourse in archaeology. And I think I'm hearing that that, that that sounds right. In in one sense, it's work that is relatively familiar to you. Already, But in another sense, it's going to drive all sorts of people to continue working on these topics in a new way or from a new angle. Or have I have I missed that?
1: No, I think I would say that uh, that's a fair assessment of of both Graeber's impact in in our field, even in in archaeology, not just more broadly in in anthropology, but the the book itself. I think, you know, that is also why there's some frustration inspirations both with uh graber and and his research more generally and then and this book in particular because it is sort of this uh it's this giant boulder uh, dropped in in this stream and you're getting all these ripples coming uh out of it and, and i think you'd mentioned uh at, at one point uh, as well graham that you know they, they talk about how this is all brand new uh, uh content that they're uh, that they're that they're bringing and so those Uh, there's some frustration I think because those later ripples are treating that as a beginning point. Um, And, you know, there was, I, you know, yeah, you can't cite everyone. You can't cite everything that's ever happened. It's going to become even if they're citing 10% of what people have argued, it's going to become like uh, an onerous, uh, a a burden for, for uh, even to carry it uh, uh, between between rooms uh, to, to read it. But um, it, one thing that I was a little disappointed with in, in this was that uh, their uh, practices were not um, more inclusive in who they're bringing in uh, to this conversation. And so a lot of the folks who'd been writing about this for a, a long time um, were, were generally excluded from the beginning of that conversation, uh, at, at least as far as the book uh, takes it, even if they've been you know, in that conversation for, uh, uh, 15, uh, uh, 20 years, and they talk about some folks like Carol Crumley, uh, they talk about in their book, and she's definitely foundational uh, for for this. And in fact, I would even put her uh, uh, at the beginning of, of this kind of conversation, along with a couple other uh, folks that uh, kind of opened the doors for this conversation to actually uh, happen in the way that Wing and Graeber did. I've always been really more specifically frustrated with Graeber, and I think this has to do with his concern about being viewed specifically as an uh, academic um, uh, anthropologist and not just as an activist uh, um, uh, anarchist uh, in the in the academy is that there's a ton of contemporary and more recent um, uh, work, you know, even outside of the academy within the anarchist uh, uh, realm that. Uh, he should have been drawing on. I, I felt like more more frequently. He's really good at citing like classical theorists like Kropotkin and uh, uh, Bakunin and stuff. But um, y- you know, y- even even this book, it, it's treading ground that like uh, uh, Gal I think who wrote Anarchy Works has uh, has treaded, and and like Sam Mabah for uh, African anarchism uh, has 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 walked uh, as well. And I didn't see those uh, in there as I was as I was reading them. So. It, it it felt frustrating that uh, this is a big moment, right, Uh, in terms of, like, opening up this conversation. And there should have been a few more voices uh, included.
2: I think there are a couple of of interesting points in this. One is that at least up until a certain point, anarchism also suffered from this big, big men idea. So it's very Mm -hmm. easy to go back to the classics, and it's very easy to go back to Kropotkin and Bakunin and sort of also get stuck into the the arguments between these Um, me coming from from a a Greek anarchist background which was on the theoretical level it was still very much at least in the 2000s within that realm of discussion right read your Kropotkin read your Bakunin and and let's talk about this Um, and in many ways it is good to go beyond that and it is best to not recreate the circumstances today into new new figureheads. I don't think necessarily David Greber would ever want to be viewed as a as a figurehead as such. It, it sort of coincidentally happened, and in, in in certain occasions he also has said like, "I don't want to be labeled as an anarchist because I am an academic, and it's it's tough to be an anarchist as an academic." I take a little bit of issue with with with, with such statements because. Yeah, you can still be an academic, and and anarchist. But I do, I do agree with you that in, in that regard, it could have been more, in, more inclusive because you, whether you like it or not, you do hold the power to to publish such a, a volume, and not to be too spider money about it. But it does come with a certain responsibility, um, wh- whether whether we like it or not. Uh, but david wengrow said uh, made an interesting statement uh, in that lecture because one of our students i think it was one of our students who asked whether this book was um whether this book was a political statement and wengrow said that at least from his point of view it was not at least not in the same way that let's say fragments of anarchist anthropology was uh, that that book by, by Graeber was much more of taking a, a political position in relation to the field rather than what they're doing in, in the dawn of everything, which is something that I can I can see. And I do think what you're saying, Graham, about, about David Graeber and, and his narrative, I would see David Graeber more as sort of the last of the more traditional anthropologists Rather than the beginning of a new, like a, a new viewpoint in anthropology, so he 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 managed to break traditional parts of the of, of the discipline uh, while still being like in this in this last in the the end of say twentieth century anthropology because you're still trained in it, but he could see its pitfalls and he could write about its pitfalls. Um, so I see this more as hopes for a new beginning rather than a new beginning in and of itself. And I think it it is kind of echoed in the book in some ways. But there is not there isn't that explicit like they don't even bring up really anarchism in the book as such, right? Um, yeah. which I, I had an inter- I'll finish <laughs> very quickly, sorry James. But I had this conversation with a colleague who he was I was asking him about the book. I'm not gonna name her names but I asked him, like, hey, what do you think? Because you've probably read it. And he said, yeah, I don't really like it. I don't really like Graver, But I think this is, like, you probably like it because it's full of anarchism. I'm like, I I, I don't think you've really read it <laughs> then. Uh, because because that's not the point of the book, I don't think. And with whatever pitfalls come with it or whatever, whatever positives comes with it.
3: Yeah, and, and Graham, hopefully your listeners will indulge a little bit of kind of boring insider intellectual history, but but one of the things that for me rings very clearly through the book, um, and, and I'd agree, you know, as anarchists, we want to kind of avoid so-called, quote, great man history, um, but as anthropologists, we're often interested in things like lineage and kinship, and one of the things that's really clear in this book is the influence of David Graeber's PhD supervisor, who's Marshall Solins, who's an anthropologist from the University of Chicago, who is another kind of master of the grand narrative. So um, you see the echoes of things like Sahlins's book, um, Stone Age Economics, in which one of the early chapters is called the original affluent society, where Solins talks about the idea that, you know, so-called hunter gatherer people um, actually live pretty good lives if you look at their lives relative to people who live in agrarian societies. They don't have to work very hard. They usually have plenty of food and plenty of things. They spend most of their time kind of napping and telling stories and hanging out with each other. You know, we should all be so lucky um, is kind of the punchline from from that particular work, at least as it's usually read and taught. It's a bit more complicated than that if you actually, you know, read the chapter, but that's usually the kind of, 30-second version of it that that a lot of us kind of project to our our undergraduates um and i think that's that's the other thing is you know again sort of thinking about the idea of how new is a lot of this argument it's not that a lot of the underlying premises are completely new it's that now the weight of evidence we have from the archaeological record has shifted so much during the last kind of 10 or 15 years through a whole bunch of new um, kind of findings really kind of right around the world, you know, from kind of Poverty Point to Gobekli Tepe to a whole bunch of stuff in island Southeast Asia, Australia and the Pacific Islands that they don't even, you know, get to in this book because as we've been discussing, you can't talk about everything, you can't talk about everywhere, but the whole time I'm reading about all of the things that, that Graeber and Wingro are writing about, I'm going okay, but also, you know, all of this stuff down here. So, for example, the fact that we now know that um, at the same time that people are making the the very famous cave paintings at places like Glasgow and Altamira in Europe, you have e- we now know there's equally old rock art from the north of Australia and and island Southeast Asia. Um, so we can't think about. Kind of these grand narratives of archaeology, and and kind of the the origins of complex behavior as being this kind of European phenomenon anymore, right? We know that it's happening actually more or less across all of human society during that kind of late Pleistocene period and in, into the the early Holocene, um, and and I think it's that kind of bit of the the trail of breadcrumbs that. They've left us going through the woods that we need to start picking up on and kind of getting that knowledge out to to a whole set of of wider audiences, Um, both in other kind of disciplines inside of academia, where I think that civilization narrative remains pretty ingrained, looking at you, humanistic geography, Um, (laughs) But also, you know, into to a public audience and into school curricula and into places where where you know these should be the kinds of fundamental narratives that people just carry around with them in their heads.
0: So I do want to jump in here and go back to something, <laughs> something that Aris said in terms of his colleague. I mean, I will uh, I will go on record and, and agree with um, your colleague, Aris, that this book is full of anarchism, but. Uh, My project was primarily inspired by Graeber and Kropotkin, and especially Kropotkin's book, Mutual Aid, that that argues that what is called anarchism, um, not as a political program, but as a practice, is something that can be found everywhere all the time, even under the most (laughs) repressive circumstances. And the traditional job of the archeologist is to find evidence that hierarchy and bureaucracy are either A, the only thing you can find or B, what everything is moving towards. And in that sense, of course, this book is filled with anarchism as is, you know, in this broad definition, and boy, have I gotten some professional anarchists really mad at me for using this broad definition of anarchism in in this sense that, um, you know, carpools are anarchism. Um, anarchism is running all through the ancient world, but we haven't been looking for it. And also, carpools don't tend to build huge monuments um, in a way that bureaucratic states do. And so here, here's here's something for you guys to weigh in on with your expertise. I think the most provocative part of this book... Okay, so you can have anarchism in hunter-gatherer societies, that's fine, because they don't have a. a big projects to do. But the idea that you could have anarchism in these larger dwellings, that they could be an imagined community, and as Benedict Anderson says, that people could imagine themselves as part of a civilization, and could build an amazing thing as that civilization without the bureaucratic state that this grand narrative tells us is the only way to build something big. That is intensely provocative, and that's the part that I have seen get the most Pushback. If you've got a city, you better have a state, and it is simply impossible. This is the argument to have a city that that runs in this kind of way, and that that seems to be the thing that bugs people about this book. And that's ours. There's the anarchism that your that your colleague found, right?
2: Yeah, I can. I mean, I I can totally see that, um, especially from someone from an from an outside their perspective, as in outside of of anarchism. Graeber has also written about these concepts, right? The the, Are you an anarchist? The answer may surprise you kind of ideas, which I I also subscribe to. Um, That's why I also always thought it was a bit weird whenever David Graeber tried to distance himself from being described as an anarchist. Um, But and maybe. Maybe I ask too much. Uh, from from the from the book maybe not I, I, I'm not sure um I will leave whoever is judging this to to judge it but in a way what um, from my perspective where I see the anarchism lacking and again it might have been intentional is that they put on they, 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 they do the work they do all the work in the book, and, and they do an excellent job in in doing the work but at the end the conclusion feels underwhelming in the sense that i would have hoped for a powerful provocative statement for the future rather than the debunking of the past because i the debunking of the past is for me at least is only important if it is for a better future and they conclude there is this paragraph where they talk about the potentially unknowable future where maybe we get to see societies where women have the power to be the foundational changes rather than pyramids and statues for example right but the they describe this as a potentially unknowable future. And of course, the future is unknowable, but from an anarchist perspective, I don't see this as unknowable. I see this as as a block in changing the system in a way that eventually will be more equal and more fair. So instead of ending on, well, when we look at the past and people talk about strict hierarchies and the and the, the, the development of the state, and citizen and hierarchies were in the presence of myths. I would say we're in the presence of myths that have defined our present. That we need to break these myths, and we broke these myths because they did it to change the future. So that—that that is my in for the broader idea. That's my main criticism, in a way, that it doesn't—it doesn't look for the future. Which, again, it might be asking much, or maybe it wasn't the intention at all. It might boil down to David's que- uh, answer that this was not a political statement. And maybe, I, you know, we were also hoping for something else.
0: Okay, we are going to stop it there. You will hear us all respond to Aris's question, his challenge. What do we do now that we know that the standard narrative of human history is a myth? How can we use that to make a new reality? Remember that you can find me at everydayanarchism.com, which is also where you can make financial contributions to keep the show going. You also support the show every time you tell a friend about it, or you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.